As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. It's good to see everyone. I, I do hope that you were paying attention and not tuning Jonathan out during the announcements, uh, especially as it relates to um, the, our needs and our student ministry and also the, the week of prayer. And uh, we're going to conclude that week of prayer with a concert of prayer here on Sunday morning. And so it'll be a different service. There won't be a, a, a typical sermon and things like that. It's going to be things uh, very different. So we've done it on Sunday evenings or Wednesday nights before in the past. But we want to encourage all of you uh, to make sure. And, and if you're comfortable coming to church, come to, make sure you come and join us for that time of corporate prayer here on uh, Sunday morning, August the 9th. Well, this week I was uh, uh, watching uh, Scott Saul's, uh, I just happened to come across it, uh, his video blog on uh, Instagram, and he spoke this week to the issue of wearing or not wearing masks and how we as Christians should respond to it. Now, clearly the Bible does not command that we wear a mask, nor does the Bible prohibit us from wearing a mask. So what uh, Scott Sauls did was he took principles from scripture and applied it uh, to this situation that we find ourselves in right now in God's church, in our culture. And he actually drew from Romans chapter 14, which I thought was uh, really interesting. And I actually was texting him behind the scenes a couple of questions to, for clarity. And, and, and what is, a, is an interesting situation here. This is the type of situation that we're in right now that the Bible doesn't command or prohibit something, right? Um, it's not a thou shalt or thou shalt not issue. It's not black and white, it's gray, right? It's uh, what verse one says is a matter of opinion. Literally, the word opinion means it is a disputable matter. Okay? Now, some people say, no, it's not disputable at all. And others are like, yes, it is disputable. That's what makes it a disputable matter because the Bible doesn't say thou shalt wear a mask, right? Or thou shalt not wear a mask. It leaves it up to us to take scriptures. The, 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 the scriptures are indifferent to the idea of mask, okay? Um, but it, takes, it puts on us the obligation to take scriptural principles and apply the word. 
There's a lot of things like this that occur in your Christian life. I'm going to give you 15 seconds. Think about something that Christians divide over that you would say this is a disputable matter. Think about what that is, okay? Give you 15 seconds. Now share it with the person next to you. If you're online, type it in the comments. What'd you think of? Okay. All right, I have a list to see if yours is on my list. Here's what I have run across 30 some odd years of being a pastor or being in the ministry. Here are the types of things that I have seen divide churches and divide Christians. Uh, entertainment, recreation, well, how, we, how we entertain or recreate ourselves. School choice, public, private, Christian, homeschool, whatever. Hymns and contemporary Christian songs. Oh, that's never been divisive, right? Um, modesty in clothing, um, the use of alcohol or the use of tobacco, um, how you discipline your children, uh, how you raise your children. In other words, do you put them on a feeding schedule and blah, blah, you know, all this kind of, you know, all these things, right? Um, how you spend your money, especially on luxury items, Christians buying a, you know, nice car, nice house, nice boat, etc. Um, uh, fertility treatments, seen that one uh, create division. Uh, games of chance, poker, uh, for example. Um, where you invest your money, the kinds of companies that you invest your money. Here's one, this wasn't that all that long ago, maybe 12 years ago, Walt Disney World. Remember the Walt Disney World boycott and Christians were coming down on boycott? Uh, and then of course you have your political parties and all the issues that define political parties and make a Republican a Republican, a Democrat a Democrat. See, here's the, here's the problem. John Calvin nailed it 500 years ago. He said, man's disposition, and let me see, is this thing on, not on? Okay, let me try it now, there we go. Okay, uh, man's disposition is to slide from a difference in opinion to quarrels and contentions. Our sinful nature is to take a difference of opinion and stake ground on it and make it into a divisive issue. And so even though God calls for his church to be unified, these kinds of things create division and dissension and arguments. And the Roman church was not immune to this. The Roman church was involved in this. They're divided over a disputable matter, a matter of opinion. So beginning in chapter 14, Paul takes the, all those general principles that we learned in chapters 12 and 13 about a, a transformed Christian who's been grounded in the gospel and how we are to love one another. He takes these very general principles in those two chapters and he brings them to bear in chapter 14 on a very specific issue that was dividing this local church. And his point that he makes here is very clear. That transformed Christians do not let differences of opinion destroy their unity in Christ. Christians who are being transformed by the gospel respond to matters, to disputable matters, differently and in a way that preserves the unity of the church. This is what the gospel does for us. The gospel shapes our responses to disputable matters in very specific ways. And in our text this morning, there's four ways that the gospel uh, shapes our responses. First of all, the gospel causes us to humbly acknowledge the likelihood of being weak or strong on any individual debatable issue. Okay, and verses one or two says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, 
but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now listen, these opening verses are important because they set the stage for all of chapter 14 and most of chapter 15. So it's important that we understand the original context, what this church was facing, and and what Paul is saying in these two opening verses, the terms that he uses. We need to understand what they mean, otherwise we're gonna draw wrong conclusions. So let's set the context. Remember the Roman church is made up of Jewish and Gentile believers. The Jewish believers, of course, come from a very strong religious a background, a, a background of faith that involved the Mosaic covenant and obedience to the law. The Gentile Christians, some of them had proselytized to Judaism, but most of them in all likelihood came from a pagan background, a very, very different background. And the issue that was before this church was that the Jews were not partaking in certain activities and they were confused as to why the Gentiles were. And specifically, you pick up hints here in this verse, for example, there's the issue of being a vegetarian or eating meat. Um, Later on, you'll see that it was holy days, like the Sabbath and observing the Sabbath. Or then finally, you'll see a reference to wine. And, And so what was going on here was kind of obvious that it wasn't that the Jewish believers had all of a sudden become vegan because, you know, of, a, of ad campaigns. No, they, they would normally eat meat, but the meat that they had access to, they saw as being unclean. You'll see these words throughout chapter 14 and 15. It was unclean. In other words, it wasn't kosher. The meat had not been handled properly and in a way that they thought uh, made it you know, uh, acceptable for them to eat as Jewish believers. Same way with wine. It wasn't that wine was forbidden to the Jews to drink, but that it had been contaminated because of how it had been created in, in process. And then, of course, the holy days, the Sabbath. The Sabbath is such an important aspect of the identity of a Hebrew that, you know, and they become Christians, they, they carry over this idea of how do I worship the Lord at Lord Jesus Christ in light of the Sabbath and what the Sabbath means to me as an individual. What's important to realize is that these Jewish believers who are, Paul calls the weak in this, in this passage, right? Uh, they were sincere Christians. They were not like the Judaizers of the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, you had Jewish people who were saying, in order to be saved, to enter into the family of God, you must trust in Jesus Christ and obey the Mosaic law. And, and Paul comes down on that with a, like a ton of bricks. He squashes this. He said, this is not the gospel. These people are not believers. This is, you know, we have to respond strongly to this. And in this instance, that's not the case. The weak person The strong person in this passage, they are sincere believers who disagree over a disputable matter. They disagree over the application of the gospel to everyday life. That's the context. Now, we need to understand these words weak and strong, okay? One group is described by Paul as weak in faith. Now, what does this mean? They're believers, they're sincere believers, but they have not yet grasped the the daily ramifications of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and how it applies to disputable matters. Uh, Tim Keller writes about this specific issue. He says that the weak 
are any Christians who tend to promote and regard non-essential cultural and ceremonial customs as being critical for Christian maturity and effectiveness. Now, the reason why these believers were considered weak in part might have been simply because of spiritual immaturity. This is often a reason why someone would be considered weak in faith. It's spiritual immaturity. The, the gospel had not yet done its work, saturated that person to such an extent that they were freed from a performance mentality and attitude, believing they had to obey certain rules and regulations in order to have the favor of God. When we understand that that's an aspect or can be a reason for somebody to be considered weak, we have to humbly acknowledge all of us have been weak and may be weak at any given time simply because we can relate to God through a performance mentality. The gospel is not being properly applied to our life in that given moment in time. So sometimes it's because of spiritual immaturity. Sometimes somebody may be the weak simply because of their past life their heritage, their family of origin, the experiences that they had in, Christ, uh, in life before coming to Christ. This is the case for Jewish people. They're, they have these strong traditions that define them as individuals. It's hard to give all that up or to not at least carry some of it over and find out how does it fit within the overall plan of God. For other people, it may be because you come from a life of extreme sin before Christ. And because of that, it creates a situation in one's life where you end up being weak in an area where the Bible actually gives freedom because of tendencies and propensities. But the key thing to understand is that the weak person is a sincere believer, oftentimes very fervent. Now, the strong, you'll notice the word strong doesn't actually appear in these verses, does it? It's implied, um, but it's used explicitly in chapter 15, verse 1. So Paul makes it clear, okay, there's the weak and there's the strong. The weak were vegetarian, the holy days, wine, meat, etc. The strong said, hey, bring on the ribeye, okay? Um, it's fine. Um, and, a, and a glass of or whatever. And so that, he, he makes it clear how he identifies the individuals here. The strong is a believer that relates to God through faith in Jesus Christ in both salvation and in daily living including when they come up to disputable matters. This person understands that you do not obtain God's favor by your obedience to rules and regulations. You don't even obtain God's favor by obeying what the word of God says. You have God's favor because you are in Christ Jesus. And you have God's favor because his righteousness has been applied to your life. And so when you come to these disputable matters, you recognize them that, that this is a matter of freedom. There are options here. And so for the strong person, he or she sees the difference between an opinion or a preference and actual gospel mandate. Strong person sees that. So in the Roman church, the weak, likely the Roman contingent, right? They, they, they were observing, insisting on certain restrictions due to the influence that the law, the Old Testament covenant had in their lives, the strong understood that those restrictions were not mandated by the gospel. Now here's what's interesting. In the Roman church, the weak 
do not eat meat, right? The Jews are weak and they do not eat meat. In the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 8, you have another similar situation. It involves a meat. And what you see in the Corinthian church is that the weak are Gentiles who will not eat meat, and the strong are Jews who will eat meat. The roles are reversed in the two churches. And that's important to understand. There's something that we need to conclude from this, right? On any given issue of Christian liberty or a disputable matter, various factors in our lives can determine whether we are the weak or we are the strong. No one is ever 100%, I'm the strong. Okay, I'll prove it to you. I've been in multiple churches where some of the most mature Christians who I've looked up to, I respect, go to and counsel. But man, when we started talking about singing contemporary songs, they went bonkers. And the strong, mature person on that issue of Christian liberty was clearly weak, okay? And so the gospel insists that we have this humility to acknowledge that on any given issue, I have to look at myself and consider, am I the weak one here? Or am I the strong? And, and, and we'll talk more about how to determine this, right? But am I the weak one? And, and the reason why we have to ask that is because we never assume we're the weak one, right? We always assume we're the strong. And, and oftentimes it's not. You know, 21 years ago, I was in a session meeting. And if you just listened to my tone of voice, and it was over worship in the church, you would just be convinced, wow, this guy is strong. And blah, blah. You know what? I was the weak one. And five years later, God opened my eyes to the fact that I was, no, this was not the Spirit of God and what God wanted. I was the weak one. So, secondly, first we have to understand we can be weak or strong. Acknowledge that. The gospel promotes that kind of humility. Secondly, the gospel anticipates that we will treat those who are in Christ Jesus as God treats them. Uh, Verse 1 again says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not not, not to quarrel over options, opinions. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Circle that word despise, okay? That's an important one. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains, pass this phrase, pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Regardless of our opinions on a disputable matter, Paul says, whether you're weak, strong, whatever it is, we are to robustly welcome someone who has a different opinion on a disputable matter. And that word welcome comes from the word proslambano, and it means to, to open up your life, to open up your home, your friendships, and your acquaintances to that person, to accept them into your inner circle. Paul will conclude much of this teaching in Romans 15, verse 7, by saying, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 
So the question immediately becomes, what does it look like to welcome someone, to not quarrel with them? It looks differently if you're strong or weak. For the strong, Paul says, you do not despise the other person, or you do not reject with contempt that other person. We, we despise someone when through our attitudes or our actions, we communicate that they really just don't matter to us that we really don't care what they're saying, that what they're saying just has no merit with us, is no worth, and, you know, we can't be bothered. In other words, we feel superior to them. Jesus experienced this kind of despising from Herod. In Luke chapter 23, Herod, with his soldiers, the Bible tells us, treated him with contempt. That's our word, despise. And he mocked him. So for the strong, we quarrel, we do not accept through an attitude of arrogance and superiority that has contempt for the other person and as a result just disregards them. The weak is different. The weak, the command is not to judge, not by judging or condemning the strong. You see, here's what happens. The strong typically will just simply ignore the person who's weak. It's like, listen to them, all right, fine, moving on, and just going about your life, right? The weak can't do that. You see, the weak can't ignore the strong because for the weak, this is a matter of sin. What you're doing here is wrong. It is sinful. It has to be denounced. It has to be argued against. And so as a result, the strong person, the person who believes they have liberty in this issue, they, they, they enter the crosshairs of the weak. Dr. James Denny in his commentary on Romans writes, the sharpness of this rebuke shows that Paul, with all his love and consideration for the weak, was alive to the possibility of a tyranny of the weak and repressed it in its beginnings. It is easy to lapse from scrupulousness about one's own conduct into Pharisaism about that of others. So as transformed Christians, Paul says, welcome one another, accept one another as God has welcomed and accepted us. Think about how the gospel informs this. Already in Romans 5, we've been told that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians chapter 2, even though we were God's enemies at war with him, that there was a wall of hostility built up between us and God, him on one side, us on the other. God, out of his grace and mercy through Christ, tore down that wall of division so that those of us who had been God's enemies, who are not the sons and daughters of God, are now brought into his family unconditionally. He didn't didn't require us to clean ourselves up first, to get ourselves straightened out. He brought us into his family, even though we weren't looking to come into his family. He pursued us, and he changed us, and he brought us in, and he gave us all the rights and privileges of sons and daughters, even though our acts aren't cleaned up and our thinking isn't straightened out yet, and we are definitely works in progress with all kinds of junk. He says, come into my family. Enjoy my presence. And so Paul is making a point here that's important for us to understand. The weak person is dearly loved by God. 
And the strong person is dearly loved by God. So essentially, Paul is saying, who do we think we are to despise or to condemn and to reject people who God loves in this way? That's not the gospel. Not at all. The gospel calls us to acknowledge that on any given issue, right, we, we may be the strong, we may be the weak. It impit, and it anticipates that we will welcome other believers just as God has welcomed them because they are in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, the gospel expects us to look to the Word of God and rely on the Spirit's leading to inform our consciences and shape our actions. Verses 5 and 6 are really important, okay? Uh, Verses 5 and 6 are critical as they give us an acceptable path to arriving at a position on a disputable matter. And then verse 6 provides us with, with the gospel motivator to actually abiding by that decision that we now make. Look at what it says. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Underline that phrase, fully convinced in his own mind. That's a critical phrase in this verse. Verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and and gives thanks to God. Paul says that before we either engage or do not engage in a disputable matter, before we live our lives and make a decision and put a stake in the ground on a particular issue, we are to be fully convinced of the rightness of the path that we are taking. We've run across this word, this phrase earlier in Romans chapter 4. When Paul was talking about Abraham and Abraham's faith, in Romans chapter 4, verse 20, we read that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he, Abraham, grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced, here's our phrase, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. What was he getting at? Okay, here's Abraham. He's, he's been given the word of God. He's been given the promises of God that he'll have an heir. Here he is now an old man. He still does not have an heir. Yet Abraham is living his life in a particular way because he is fully convinced in his heart and mind that this is what God has said and this is what God wants him to do with his life. So the circumstances didn't matter. This is what he was doing. And so Paul says, we are to approach these disputable matters in a similar way. We are to think through and be convinced fully that what we hold to is exactly what God wants us to hold to, that how we live or don't live in relationship to this disputable matter is exactly what God wants us to do and live. How do we do it? This is where it's important 
for us to see this idea of being fully convinced, like Abraham who contemplated what God had said and what God had revealed to him and then thought and prayed about it and he, and he appropriated it and applied it to his life. We do the very same thing. We are convinced, first of all, whether the, we have to become convinced, first of all, whether the matter is actually disputable or not. We start right there, especially nowadays because Nowadays, things are classified as disputable that are, <laughs> they're as black as the ace of spades, okay? We start by examining the scriptures and seeing what do the scriptures say about this? Is there a clear teaching? Is there a clear thou shalt not or thou shalt? Is there a clear case study example in the Bible that addresses this particular matter of Christian liberty? Does it give me principles that, are, are, that apply here, maybe very explicitly, that I need to have in consideration as I arrive at a position? The point here is this is not some flippant, well, what do you, well, I think this. Have you ever watched Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon? And they'll send guys out on the street and they'll ask questions of people, right? And, and the whole point of the question is to reveal what idiots we really are, okay? Because they will make stuff up. And they will put something, what do you think about the situation, blah, 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 blah. Or, or what do you think about that band? Or, or can you tell me where this band is playing tonight? And there is no band like that. And then somebody will look them dead in the eye and say, go two blocks down that way and hang a right, they're on the center stage. And the band doesn't even exist. But the person is just convinced, I'm an expert, I know the answer to this, and we're so quick to have an opinion that this is what is, and, and Paul says, slow your roll, Christians. Slow down. Go to the Word first. Look at the Word and see, does the Word say anything about it? And don't allow something that's absolute to now be classified as disputable. I had a conversation like this one time with a, a young woman who was moving in with her boyfriend. And in her mind, it was, it was just my opinion that it was wrong for her to have those kind of relationships with her boyfriend. And I'm saying, no, this is not a matter of opinion. This is black and white. This is the word of God that says this. So first we start by determining, is the matter truly disputable? Once we know that the matter is disputable, and we become convinced of that, it becomes, that it's a matter of Christian freedom. Paul essentially is saying here, we have to begin interrogating our conscience, right? We, we, we need to know, is this, it may be a matter of Christian liberty, but is it something for me to participate in? Because just because something is allowed doesn't mean it's necessarily wise, right? And so I can deceive myself. Interrogating our conscience means we've read the word, we take all these biblical principles, and now we spend time in prayer, and we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, to, to open our eyes, and to help us to understand what the direction we are to take in our life concerning this disputable matter. And sometimes the Holy Spirit tells one person one thing, and another person another thing. So some of the things that we have to ask ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in is, does this, does this thing open the door to sin in my life? Is it actually an avenue that, yes, it may be a, a matter of Christian freedom, but for me, I can't partake of it because I'm too susceptible. 
Another one would be, can I, can I do this? And this is where verse six comes into play. Can I do this in a way that is honoring to God? Where I can worship God through this activity or if I participate in it, am I gonna be ashamed before Christ? And, and, and that's where we spend time in prayer. I, I have a very good friend. He did this on the question of alcohol, right? And, and he prayed and, and he had a, a history uh, in his family of alcohol. And he himself, before Christ, had drunk copious amounts of alcohol. And so he, he wondered, he saw Christians drinking and others saying, no, it was sin. And so he went to the scriptures, he examined the scriptures, he studied the scriptures, he sat down, he walked away convinced that the Bible actually does give freedom when it comes to the matter of alcohol with certain parameters. So, so, so it was truly a disputable matter. It's a matter of Christian freedom as to whether or not he could drink alcohol. But then he spent time in prayer. Is this something for me to partake in? And the answer to, from the Holy was very clear, absolutely not. It's too dangerous for you. You shouldn't even play with it because it can lead you down a path of destruction. And so he said, while I believe it's perfectly okay for Christians to drink alcohol in moderation, et cetera, et cetera, with all the parameters, it's not okay for me. So I'm not going to drink. And he's been that way for 31 years, 32 years. That, by the way, he's not partaking in, his, in Christian liberty, but that process he went through would you say he is now weak or strong? Absolutely. You see, strong people don't always participate in the liberty that they have on a disputable matter. You're strong because of how you arrive at the position and your motivation of your heart. I wrote something here, verses five and six, have great ability to preserve the peace and unity of the church. When we humbly engage one another and have a dialogue over a disputable issue, we can end up differing in our opinions and practices, yet greatly respecting and honoring one another's sincerity and one's position. As a result, we would hear much more, God hasn't led me to do what John does or Jane does, but I certainly understand why it's right for him or for her. That kind of process and end result strengthens and unifies a church regardless of the differences that may exist. You know, when it comes to disputable matters, we treat others as Christ, as God treats them. We acknowledge with humility that we can be weak or strong. We arrive at our positions through the study of Scripture and, and the interrogation of our conscience. There's one final thing here that the gospel compels us to do in these matters. It compels us to live for the one whom we will one day bow before. Verses seven and 12 essentially say this. Listen, we have no business judging one another on these issues. There's only one judge, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day we're going to appear before him. He's the only one who is qualified to judge my brother or sister in Christ. That's not in my job description. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that these, these words, let me get to it here. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, 
that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. As Christians, right, we do not live with our eyes on other Christians, comparing what they do to what we do. That's not how we're to live. I can guarantee you that when we are in a posture of despising someone or treating them dismissively because of what they do not do or do, or we're judging and condemning another Christian for a matter of, of, of opinion and disputable matter, I guarantee you at that moment in time, our eyes are not on Christ. Our eyes are on that person. When we, when we don't enjoy our Christian liberty out of fear of what another Christian will say or think about us. At that moment, our eyes are on that person, not on Christ. And Christians, Christians keep their eyes on Christ. He's our master. He's the one that we're going to stand before one day. We live first and foremost for our king and for his kingdom and not our own interest or our own desires. And, and church, isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? Doesn't, doesn't the gospel teach us that, that Christ took on flesh, not because it was in his best interest, and not because it, 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 it was something that it was going to be just an enjoyable experience for him to do, so he had all these reasons, personal reasons, why it was validating to him to do it. No, he took on flesh, he lived among us, he dies on Calvary's tree for our interest. And so verses 7 to 12 say, now that we are here and we have these matters of disputable, these disputable matters, these matters of Christian liberty, we look to the interest of Christ. We don't look at the other people. We look at the fact that one day he's going to come back. And we're going to stand before him. And when we consider that and we keep our eyes on that reality, it changes these disputable matters. Rather than getting wrapped around the axle on issues of Christian liberty, keeping our eyes on Christ and his coming, it, it compels us to keep the most important things before us, the main thing, the main thing. It, it causes us to realize we have limited time. So why do I want to waste my time on issues that don't edify and build up the body of Christ? That's just foolish. Right? I mean, we have limited energy. Why waste it on arguments and, and quarreling and things that don't grow the kingdom of God? Right? We, we have, here's a big one for us that we really need to, we actually, believe it or not, have limited knowledge and insight into other people's lives. We really do. We don't know what's going on in their heart and in their life, and we don't know everything that's in their past. So why don't we just assume the best with someone when they land on a different issue, a different side of the issue from us? I asked a couple of weeks back, who do you have affinity for? Who is more comfortable to you? Who do you want to hang around more? Your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, who disagrees with you on your political issues? Or someone who is not a brother or sister in Christ who agrees with you on your political issues, right? 
Why, do, why would we say the latter instead of the first? It's because we assume the worst. We have limited opportunities to engage the world around us. A united church is critical if we're going to engage it effectively. Stand up with me. There's a saying, and I want us to read it together in closing. There's a saying in church history. It's one of my favorite ones. It's credited to St. Augustine. It certainly sounds like something Augustine would say. I've read a lot of Augustine's works. I haven't read them all. And I have to be honest, I haven't found this saying in his writings, but it still has credited to him. So maybe he preached it in a sermon and it's been passed down orally. But here it is. I love this saying, and I want us to read it together as we close. Ready? Out loud. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In all things, love. Lord Jesus, would you make us a church that is just unified around the essentials, that we are on mission for you. Lord, in the non-essentials and the areas that might be disputable, where we might not see eye to eye on a particular issue, a particular uh, political candidate, a, a particular decision that, that elders might make, whatever it may be, Lord, may we respond to one another with grace and love. May we accept and welcome one another and think the best just the way that you have welcomed us and you think the best of us because of Jesus Christ who now resides in us through his spirit. May your spirit guide our thoughts, open our eyes, make us wise Christians when it comes to these matters of dispute. For your glory, we ask these things and for the good of your church, Amen.